Section 6 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1889 to 1892. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 6. Benjamin Harrison. December 9, 1891. Part 2. The island of Navassa in the West Indian group has, under the provisions of Title Seven of the Revised Statutes, been recognized by the President as appertaining to the United States. It contains guano deposits, is owned by the Navassa Phosphate Company, and is occupied solely its employees. In September 1889, a revolt took place among these laborers, resulting in the killing of some of the agents of the company caused, as the laborers claimed, by cruel treatment. These men were arrested and tried in the United States Court at Baltimore, under Section 5576 of the statute referred to, as if the offenses had been committed on board a merchant vessel of the United States on the high seas. There appeared on the trial, and otherwise came to me, such evidences of the bad treatment of the men that in consideration of this and of the fact that the men had no access to any public officer or tribunal for protection or the redress of their wrongs, I commuted the death sentences that had been passed by the court upon three of them. In April last, my attention was again called to the island and to the unregulated condition of things there by a letter from a colored laborer who complained that he was wrongfully detained upon the island by the phosphate company after the expiration of his contract of service. A naval vessel was sent to examine into the case of this man and generally into the conditions of things on the island. It was found that the laborer referred to had been detained beyond the contract limit and that a condition of revolt again existed among the laborers. A board of naval officers reported, among other things, as follows. We would desire to state further that the discipline maintained on the island seems to be that of a convict establishment, without its comforts and cleanliness, and that until more attention is paid to the shipping of laborers by placing it under government supervision to prevent misunderstanding and misrepresentation, and until some amelioration is shown in the treatment of the laborers, these disorders will be of constant occurrence. I recommend legislation that shall place labor contracts upon this and other islands having the relation that Navassa has to the United States under the supervision of a court commissioner, and that shall provide, at the expense of the owners, an officer to reside upon the island, with power to judge and adjust disputes, and to enforce a just and humane treatment of the employees. It is inexcusable that our American laborers should be left within our own jurisdiction without access to any government officer or tribunal for their protection and the redress of their wrongs. International copyright has been secured in accordance with the conditions of the Act of March 3, 1891, with Belgium, France, Great Britain and the British possessions, and Switzerland. The laws of those countries permitting to our citizens the benefit of copyright on substantially the same basis as to their own citizens or subjects. 
With Germany, a special convention has been negotiated upon this subject, which will bring that country within the reciprocal benefits of our legislation. The general interest in the operations of the Treasury Department has been much augmented during the last year by reason of the conflicting predictions which accompanied and followed the tariff and other legislation of the last Congress affecting the revenues as to the results of this legislation upon the Treasury and upon the country. On the one hand, it was contended that imports would so fall off as to leave the Treasury bankrupt, and that the prices of articles entering into the living of the people would be so enhanced as to disastrously affect their comfort and happiness, while on the other it was argued that the loss to the revenue, largely the result of placing sugar on the free list, would be a direct gain to the people, that the prices of the necessaries of life, including those most highly protected, would not be enhanced, that labor would have a larger market, and the products of the farm advanced prices while the Treasury surplus and receipts would be adequate to meet the appropriations, including the large exceptional expenditures for refunding to the states of the direct tax and the redemption of the 4.5% bonds. It is not my purpose to enter at any length into a discussion of the effects of the legislation to which I have referred, but a brief examination of the statistics of the Treasury and a general glance at the state of business throughout the country will, I think, satisfy any impartial inquirer that its results have disappointed the evil prophecies of its opponents, and, in a large measure, realized the hopeful predictions of its friends. Rarely, if ever before, in the history of the country has there been a time when the proceeds of one day's labor or the product of one farmed acre would purchase so large an amount of those things that enter into the living of the masses of the people. I believe that a full test will develop the fact that the Tariff Act of the 51st Congress is very favorable in its average effect upon the prices of articles entering into common use. During the 12 months from October 1, 1890, to September 30, 1891, the total value of our foreign commerce, imports and exports combined, was $1,747,806,406, which was the largest of any year in the history of the United States. The largest in any previous year was in 1890, when our commerce amounted to $1,647,139,093. And the last year exceeds this enormous aggregate by over 100 million. It is interesting, and to some will be surprising, to know that during the year ending September 30, 1891, our imports of merchandise amounted to $824,715,270, which was an increase of more than $11 million over the value of the imports of the corresponding months of the preceding year, when the imports of merchandise were unusually large in anticipation of the tariff legislation then pending. The average annual value of the imports of merchandise for the ten years from 1881 to 1890 was $692,186,522. 
and during the year ending September 30th, 1891, this annual average was exceeded by 132528469 dollars. The value of free imports during the 12 months ending September 30th, 1891 was $118,092,387 more than the value of free imports during the corresponding 12 months of the preceding year. And there was during the same period a decrease of $106,846,508 in the value of imports of dutiable merchandise. The percentage of merchandise admitted free of duty during the year, to which I have referred, the first under the new tariff, was 48.18, while during the preceding 12 months, under the old tariff, the percentage was 34.27, an increase of 13.91%. If we take the six months ending September 30 last, which covers the same time during which sugars have been admitted free of duty, the percent of value of merchandise imported free of duty is found to be 55.37, which is a larger percentage of free imports than during any prior fiscal year in the history of the government. If we turn to exports of merchandise, the statistics are full of gratification. The value of such exports of merchandise for the 12 months ending September 30, 1891 was $923,091,136, while for the corresponding previous 12 months it was $860,177,115, an increase of $62,914,021, which is nearly three times the average annual increase of exports of merchandise for the preceding 20 years. This exceeds, in amount and value, the exports of merchandise during any year in the history of the government. The increase in the value of exports of agricultural products during the year referred to over the corresponding 12 months of the prior year was $45,846,197, while the increase in the value of exports of manufactured products was $16,838,240. There is certainly nothing in the condition of trade, foreign or domestic, there is certainly nothing in the condition of our people of any class to suggest that the existing tariff and revenue legislation bears oppressively upon the people or retards the commercial development of the nation. It may be argued that our condition would be better if tariff legislation were upon a free trade basis, but it cannot be denied that all the conditions of prosperity and of general contentment are present in a larger degree than ever before in our history, and that, too, just when it was prophesied they would be in the worst state. Agitation for radical changes in tariff and financial legislation cannot help but may seriously impede business, to the prosperity of which some degree of stability in legislation is essential. I think there are conclusive evidences that the new tariff has created several great industries, which will within a few years give employment to several hundred thousand American working men and women. 
in view of the somewhat overcrowded condition of the labor market of the United States, every patriotic citizen should rejoice as a result. The report of the Secretary of the Treasury shows that the total receipts of the government from all sources for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1891, were $458,544,233.03, while the expenditures for the same period were $421,304,470.46, leaving a surplus of $37,239,000. $762.57. The receipts of the fiscal year ending June 30, 1892, actual and estimated, are $433 million, and the expenditures, $409 million. For the fiscal year ending June 30, 1893, the estimated receipts are $455,336,350. And the expenditures, $441,300,093. Under the law of July 14, 1890, the Secretary of the Treasury has purchased, since August 13, during the fiscal year, 48,393,113 ounces of silver bullion at an average cost of $1.045 per ounce. The highest price paid during the year was $1.2025 and the lowest $0.9636. In exchange for this silver bullion, there has been issued $50,577,498 of the Treasury notes authorized by the Act. The lowest price of silver reached during the fiscal year was $0.9636 on April 22nd. 1891, but on November 1st, the market price was only $0.96, which would give to the silver dollar a bullion value of 74 and a quarter cents. Before the influence of the prospective silver legislation was felt in the market, silver was worth in New York about $0.955 per ounce. The ablest advocates of free coinage in the last Congress were most confident in their predictions that the purchases by the government required by the law would at once bring the price of silver to $1.2929 per ounce, which would make the bullion value of the dollar 100 cents and hold it there. The prophecies of the anti-silver men of disasters to result from the coinage of $2 million per month were not wider of the mark. The friends of free silver are not agreed, I think, as to the causes that brought their hopeful predictions to naught. Some facts are known. The exports of silver from London to India during the first nine months of this calendar year fell off over 50%, or $17,202,730, compared with the same months of the preceding year. The exports of domestic silver bullion from this country which had averaged for the last 10 years over $17 million, fell in the last fiscal year to $13,797,391, while for the first time in recent years, the imports of silver into this country exceeded the exports by the sum of 
$745,365. In the previous year, the net exports of silver from the United States amounted to $8,545,455. The production of the United States increased from 50 million ounces in 1889 to 54,500,000 in 1890. The government is now buying and putting aside annually 54 million ounces, which, allowing for 7,140,000 ounces of new bullion used in the arts, is 6,640,000 more than our domestic products available for coinage. I hope the depression in the price of silver is temporary and that a further trial of this legislation will more favorably affect it. That the increased volume of currency thus supplied for the use of the people was needed and that beneficial results upon trade and prices have followed this legislation, I think, must be very clear to everyone. Nor should it be forgotten that for every dollar of these notes issued, a full dollar's worth of silver bullion is at the time deposited in the treasury as a security for its redemption. Upon this subject, as upon the tariff, my recommendation is that the existing laws be given a full trial and that our business interests be spared the distressing influence which threats of radical changes always impart. Under existing legislation, it is in the power of the Treasury Department to maintain that essential condition of national finance as well as of commercial prosperity, the parity in use of the coined dollars and their paper representatives. The assurance that these powers would be freely and unhesitatingly used has done much to produce and sustain the present favorable business conditions. I am still of the opinion that the free coinage of silver under existing conditions would disastrously affect our business interests at home and abroad. We could not hope to maintain an equality in the purchasing power of the gold and silver dollar in our own markets and in foreign trade, the stamp gives no added value to the bullion contained in coins. The producers of the country, its farmers and laborers, have the highest interest that every dollar, paper, or coin issued by the government shall be as good as any other. If there is one less valuable than another, its sure and constant errand will be to pay them for their toil and for their crops. The moneylender will protect himself by stipulating for payment in gold, but the laborer has never been able to do that. To place business upon a silver basis would mean a sudden and severe contraction of the currency by the withdrawal of gold and gold notes and such an unsettling of all values as would produce a commercial panic. I cannot believe that a people so strong and prosperous as ours will promote such a policy. The producers of gold are entitled to just consideration, but they should not forget that the government is now buying and putting out of the market what is the equivalent of the entire product of our silver mines. This is more than they themselves thought of asking two years ago. I believe it is the earnest desire of a great majority of the people, as it is mine, that a full coin use shall be made of silver just as soon as the cooperation of other nations can be secured and a ratio fixed that will give circulation equally 
to gold and silver. The business of the world requires the use of both metals, but I do not see any prospect of gain, but much of loss, by giving up the present system, in which a full use is made of gold and a large use of silver, for one in which silver alone will circulate. Such an event would be at once fatal to the further progress of the silver movement. Bimetallism is the desired end, and the true friends of silver will be careful not to overrun the goal and bring in silver monometallism with its necessary attendance, the loss of our gold to Europe and the relief of the pressure there for a larger currency. I have endeavored by the use of official and unofficial agencies to keep a close observation of the state of public sentiment in Europe upon this question and have not found it to be such as to justify me in proposing an international conference. There is, however, I am sure, a growing sentiment in Europe in favor of a larger use of silver, and I know of no more effectual way of promoting this sentiment than by accumulating gold here. A scarcity of gold in the European reserves will be the most persuasive argument for the use of silver. The exports of gold to Europe, which began in February last and continued until the close of July, aggregated over $70 million. The net loss of gold during the fiscal year was nearly $68 million. That no serious monetary disturbance resulted was most gratifying and gave to Europe fresh evidence of the strength and stability of our financial institutions. With the movement of crops, the outflow of gold was speedily stopped and a return set in. Up to December 1st, we had recovered our gold lost at the Port of New York $27,854,000, and it is confidently believed that during the winter and spring this aggregate will be steadily and largely increased. The presence of a large cash surplus in the Treasury has for many years been the subject of much unfavorable criticism, and has furnished an argument to those who have desired to place the tariff upon a purely revenue basis. It was agreed by all that the withdrawal from circulation of so large an amount of money was an embarrassment to the business of the country, and made necessary the intervention of the department at frequent intervals to relieve threatened monetary panics. The surplus on March 1, 1889, was $183,827,190.29. The policy of applying this surplus to the redemption of the interest-bearing securities of the United States was thought to be preferable to that of depositing it without interest in selected national banks. There have been redeemed since the date last mentioned of interest-bearing securities $259,079,350, resulting in a reduction of the annual interest charge of $11,684,675. The money which had been deposited in banks without interest has been gradually withdrawn and used in the redemption of bonds. The result of this policy of the silver legislation and of the refunding of the 4.5% bonds has been a large increase of the money in circulation. At the date last named, 
the circulation was 1,404,205,896 dollars or $23.03 per capita, while on the first day of December 1891 it had increased to 1,577,262,070 dollars or $24.38 per capita. The offer of the Secretary of the Treasury to the holders of the 4.5% bonds to extend the time of redemption at the option of the government at an interest of 2% was accepted by the holders of about one-half the amount, and the unextended bonds are being redeemed on presentation. The report of the Secretary of War exhibits the results of an intelligent, progressive, and business-like administration of a department which has been too much regarded as one of mere routine. The separation of Secretary Proctor from the department by reason of his appointment as a senator from the state of Vermont is a source of great regret to me and to his colleagues in the cabinet, as I am sure it will be to all those who have had business with the department while under his charge. In the administration of Army Affairs, some especially good work has been accomplished. The efforts of the Secretary to reduce the percentage of desertions by removing the causes that promoted it have been so successful as to enable him to report for the last year a lower percentage of desertion than has been before reached in the history of the Army. The resulting money saving is considerable but the improvement in the morale of the enlisted men is the most valuable incident of the reforms which have brought about this result. The work of securing sites for shore batteries for harbor defense and the manufacture of mortars and guns of high power to equip them have made good progress during the year. The preliminary work of tests and plans, which so long delayed a start, is now out of the way. Some guns have been completed and with an enlarged shop and a more complete equipment at Waterbliet, the Army will soon be abreast of the Navy in gun construction. Whatever unavoidable causes of delay may arise, there should be none from delayed or insufficient appropriations. We shall be greatly embarrassed in the proper distribution and use of naval vessels until adequate shore defenses are provided for our harbors. I concur in the recommendation of the Secretary that the three-battalion organization be adopted for the infantry. The adoption of a smokeless powder and of a modern rifle equal in range, precision, and rapidity of fire to the best now in use will, I hope, not be longer delayed. The project of enlisting Indians and organizing them into separate companies upon the same basis as other soldiers was made the subject of very careful study by the secretary and received my approval. Seven companies have been completely organized, and seven more are in the process of organization. The results of six months' training have more than realized the highest anticipations. The men are readily brought under discipline acquire the drill with facility, and show great pride in the right discharge of their duty and perfect loyalty to their officers, who declare that they would like to take them into action with confidence.
the discipline, order, and cleanliness of the military posts will have a wholesome and elevating influence upon the men enlisted, and through them upon their tribes, while a friendly feeling for the whites and a greater respect for the government will certainly be promoted. The great work done in the Record and Pension Division of the War Department by Major Ainsworth of the Medical Corps and the clerks under him is entitled to honorable mention. Taking up the work with nearly 41,000 cases behind, he closed the last fiscal year without a single case left over, though the new cases had increased 52% in number over the previous year by reason of the pension legislation of the last Congress. I concur in the recommendation of the Attorney General that the right in felony cases to a review by the Supreme Court be limited. It would seem that personal liberty would have a safe guarantee if the right of review in cases involving only fine and imprisonment were limited to the Circuit Court of Appeals, unless a constitutional question should in some way be involved. The judges of the Court of Private Land Claims, provided for by the Act of March 3, 1891, have been appointed and the court organized. It is now possible to give early relief to communities long repressed in their development by unsettled land titles and to establish the possession and right of settlers whose lands have been rendered valueless by adverse and unfounded claims. The Act of July 9, 1888, provided for the incorporation and management of a reform school for girls in the District of Columbia, but it has remained inoperative for the reason that no appropriation has been made for construction or maintenance. The need of such an institution is very urgent. Many girls could be saved from depraved lives by the wholesome influences and restraints of such a school. I recommend that the necessary appropriation be made for a site and for construction. The enforcement by the Treasury Department of the law prohibiting the coming of Chinese to the United States has been effective as to such as seek to land from vessels entering our ports. The result has been to divert the travel to vessels entering the ports of British Columbia, whence passage into the United States at obscure points along the Dominion boundary is easy. A very considerable number of Chinese laborers have during the past year entered the United States from Canada and Mexico. The officers of the Treasury Department and of the Department of Justice have used every means at their command to intercept this immigration, but the impossibility of perfectly guarding our extended frontier is apparent. The Dominion government collects a head tax of $50 from every Chinaman entering Canada, and thus derives a considerable revenue from those who only use its ports to reach a position of advantage to evade our exclusion laws. There seems to be satisfactory evidence that the business of passing Chinamen through Canada to the United States is organized and quite active. The Department of Justice has construed the laws to require the return of any Chinaman found to be unlawfully in this country to China as the country from which he came, notwithstanding the fact that he came by way of Canada, but several of the district courts have in cases brought before them 
overruled this view of the law and decided that such persons must be returned to Canada. This construction robs the law of all effectiveness, even if the decrees could be executed, for the men returned can the next day recross our border. But the only appropriation made is for sending them back to China, and the Canadian officials refuse to allow them to re-enter Canada without the payment of the $50 head tax. I recommend such legislation as will remedy these defects in the law. In previous messages, I have called the attention of Congress to the necessity of so extending the jurisdiction of the United States courts to make tribal therein any felony committed while in the act of violating a law of the United States. These courts cannot have that independence and effectiveness which the Constitution contemplates so long as the felonious killing of court officers, jurors, and witnesses in the discharge of their duties or by reason of their acts as such is only cognizable in the state courts. The work done by the Attorney General and the officers of his department, even under the present inadequate legislation, has produced some notable results in the interest of law and order. The Attorney General and also the Commissioners of the District of Columbia call attention to the defectiveness and inadequacy of the laws relating to crimes against chastity in the District of Columbia. A stringent code upon this subject has been provided by Congress for Utah, and it is a matter of surprise that the needs of this district should have been so long overlooked. In the report of the Postmaster General, some very gratifying results are exhibited and many betterments of the service suggested. A perusal of the report gives abundant evidence that the supervision and direction of the postal system have been characterized by an intelligent and conscientious desire to improve the service. The revenues of the department show an increase of over $5 million, with a deficiency for the year 1892 of less than $4 million, while the estimate for the year 1893 shows a surplus of receipts over expenditures. Ocean mail post offices have been established upon the steamers of the North German Lloyd and Hamburg lines, saving by the distribution on shipboard from 2 to 14 hours' time in the delivery of mail at the port of entry and often much more than this in the delivery at interior places. So thoroughly has this system, initiated by Germany and the United States, evidenced its usefulness that it cannot be long before it is installed upon all the great ocean mail-carrying steamships. 8,000 miles of new postal service has been established upon railroads. The car distribution to substations in the great cities has been increased about 12%, while the percentage of errors in distribution has, during the past year, been reduced over one-half. An appropriation was given by the last Congress for the purpose of making some experiments in free delivery in the smaller cities and towns. The results of these experiments have been so satisfactory that the Postmaster General recommends, and I concur in the recommendation, that the free delivery system be at once extended to towns of 5,000 population. 
His discussion of the inadequate facilities extended under our present system to rural communities and his suggestion with a view to give these communities a fuller participation in the benefits of the Postal Service are worthy of your careful consideration. It is not just that the farmer who receives his mail at a neighboring town should not only be compelled to send to the post office for it, but to pay a considerable rent for a box in which to place it or to wait his turn at a general delivery window, while the city resident has his mail brought to his door. It is stated that over 54,000 neighborhoods are under the present system receiving mail at post offices where money orders and postal notes are not issued. The extension of this system to these communities is especially desirable, as the patrons of such offices are not possessed of the other facilities offered in more populous communities for the transmission of small sums of money. I have in a message to the preceding Congress expressed my views as to a modified use of the telegraph in connection with the Postal Service. In pursuance of the Ocean Mail Law of March 3, 1891, and after a most careful study of the whole subject and frequent conferences with shipowners, boards of trade, and others, advertisements were issued by the Postmaster General for 53 lines of American mail service, 10 to Great Britain and the continent, 27 to South America, 3 to China and Japan, 4 to Australia and the Pacific Islands, seven to the West Indies, and two to Mexico. It was not, of course, expected that bids for all these lines would be received or that service upon them all would be contracted for. It was intended, in furtherance of the Act, to secure as many new lines as possible, while including in the list most or all of the foreign lines now occupied by American ships. It was hoped that a line to England and perhaps one to the continent would be secured, but the outlay required to equip such lines wholly with new ships of the first class and the difficulty of establishing new lines in competition with those already established deterred bidders whose interest had been enlisted. It is hoped that a way may yet be found of overcoming these difficulties. The Brazil Steamship Company, by reason of a miscalculation as to the speed of its vessels, was not able to bid under the terms of the advertisement. The policy of the department was to secure from the established lines an improved service as a condition of giving to them the benefits of the law. This, in all instances, has been attained. The Postmaster General estimates that an expenditure in American shipyards of about $10 million will be necessary to enable the bidders to construct the ships called for by the service, which they have accepted. I do not think there is any reason for discouragement or for any turning back from the policy of this legislation. Indeed, a good beginning has been made, and as the subject is further considered and understood by capitalists and shipping people, new lines will be ready to meet future proposals and we may date from the passage of this law the revival of American shipping interests and the recovery of a fair share of the carrying trade of the world. We were receiving for foreign postage nearly $2 million under the old system, 
and the outlay for ocean mail service did not exceed $600,000 per annum. It is estimated by the Postmaster General that if all the contracts proposed are completed, it will require $247,354 for this year in addition to the appropriation for sea and inland postage already in the estimates, and that for the next fiscal year, ending June 30, 1893, there would probably be needed about $560,000. The report of the Secretary of the Navy shows a gratifying increase of new naval vessels in commission. The Newark, Concord, Bennington, and Myantanoma have been added during the year, with an aggregate of something more than 11,000 tons. Twenty-four warships of all classes are now under construction in the Navy yards and private shops, but while the work upon them is going forward satisfactorily, the completion of the more important vessels will yet require about a year's time. Some of the vessels now under construction, it is believed, will be triumphs of naval engineering. When it is recollected that the work of building a modern navy was only initiated in the year 1883, that our naval constructors and shipbuilders were practically without experience in the construction of large iron or steel ships, that our engine shops were unfamiliar with great marine engines, and that the manufacture of steel forgings for guns and plates was almost wholly a foreign industry, the progress that has been made is not only highly satisfactory, but furnishes the assurance that the United States will before long attain in the construction of such vessels with their engines and armaments the same preeminence which it attained when the best instrument of ocean commerce was the clipper ship and the most impressive exhibit of naval power the old wooden three-decker man-of-war. The officers of the Navy and the proprietors and engineers of our great private shops have responded with wonderful intelligence and professional zeal to the confidence expressed by Congress in its liberal legislation. We have now at Washington a gun shop, organized and conducted by naval officers, that in its system, economy, and product is unexcelled. Experiments with armor plate have been conducted during the year with most important results. It is now believed that a plate of higher resisting power than any in use has been found and that the tests have demonstrated that cheaper methods of manufacture than those heretofore thought necessary can be used. I commend to your favorable consideration the recommendations of the Secretary, who has, I am sure, given to them the most conscientious study. There should be no hesitation in promptly completing a navy of the best modern type, large enough to enable this country to display its flag in all seas for the protection of its citizens and of its extending commerce. The world needs no assurance of the peaceful purposes of the United States, but we shall probably be, in the future, more largely a competitor in the commerce of the world, and it is essential to the dignity of this nation and to that peaceful influence which it should exercise on this hemisphere that its navy should be adequate both upon the shores of the Atlantic and of the Pacific. End of Section 6 Recording by Paul Thomas